Coming up, we have got a big show for you with the big show. This could get confusing. ATB starts now. You already know him as the world's largest athlete, but today he is the world's largest podcast guest, a man who truly needs no introduction, but there was one anyway, the big show. (laughs) Show, thanks for joining me, man. Via FaceTime, it's nice to see your face. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I got a little FaceTime story. You know, uh, Stone Cold's a good buddy of mine, and I uh, FaceTimed Steve one time. He picks up the phone. He starts laughing. I said, what are you laughing? He goes, damn it, dudes, don't FaceTime dudes. (laughs) He hung up. (laughs) <laughs> so I broke I broke the dude code and FaceTime another dude. So, but I'm I'm FaceTiming a dude now, but it's for business, so I guess it's okay. In the there you go. We, we won't hold it against you. Come to think of it, but, though, I find it very rare. I usually only FaceTime my girlfriend or my kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't FaceTime dudes either. I don't know why I FaceTime Steve that day. I guess I just missed his face or something. I don't know. You know, I FaceTime Mark Henry all the time. That's different. I FaceTime Mark Henry. So, because sometimes just seeing Mark smile makes my day. Now, I'll agree with that for sure. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Steve, so I knew I'd be chatting with you today. So yesterday, I actually sat down and watched the Broken Skull session uh, on WWE Network. Right. And Steve uh, is a quite masterful interviewer in his own way and, and really wow. hit all of the, all of the tent poles that uh, you kind of would have wanted to in a, in a career retrospective. So I will do my best not to repeat, but it actually peaked a few questions of my own listening to your uh, your view on things. So off the top of my head, you guys went in depth pretty heavy on the difference of the environment when you went from WCW, where you right. had been on top. You'd been the champion. You'd, you'd been in, a, in the NWO, and then you arrived in uh, New York, and it was very, very different. You compared it to the uh, like a shark tank. Right. In this day and age, 2020, I think you could probably attest that the environment backstage and the business as a whole, uh, as far as WWE, is is definitely a different landscape. In your opinion, do you think that that mentality would benefit the product and the talent in this day and age? I think that's the one thing that I see a lot with the newer talent um, is I see drive, I see heart, I see passion, but confidence is lacking because they haven't found themselves yet. And I know because I was there for years and not having confidence in myself as a talent. So, and I think sometimes a little bit more uh, aggressive environment uh, is beneficial to make, make it grow and weed out those that shouldn't be there. You know what I mean? Cause it's, it's really good. You know, I always hear people when they first start, Oh, I love the business. I love the business. You've been in it five minutes. Unless you make a dramatic change in yourself, to create a new following, to create new interest, to create new uh, eyes on you, this is where you are, you know? And it's not about settling. It's about uh, it's about finding a way to keep improving, to make every day better, to, to reevaluate. So Undertaker's amazing at that. You know, for so many years, Undertaker was the dead man. He came out, his entrance was the most iconic entrance of all time, in my opinion. Of course. And then he reached a point where he's like, you know what? I'm going to change. And then you got to see Undertaker's American Badass. He had the bike. He started putting more uh, MMA holds because he's an MMA fan. So he started doing more shoot MMA type holds and, and changed his style a little bit to evolve with the times. You know, and I think that comes through 
through pressure and having people around you push you to be better and, and people above you that you're trying to get after and you're trying to get better than them. I don't really see that because I see everybody's kind of slotted right now, you know, and I think that's the thing that makes that saddens me a little bit is, you know, the, it, it's, it's, I think it's tough for some talent when they get put in a certain slot to get out of that slot, especially when they're green and they're inexperienced because they don't know how. And they're not going to be led that way. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, everything's hand fed to them. In a lot of ways, they're kind of on their own. It's a really weird dynamic to try to explain. But, you know, that's I've always just tried to, to give an ear to anybody that asked anything, no matter who they were, and try to help. Because it, it sucks doing something you love and have a passion for, but not understand how you fit in or, or, or where you are as a cog. You know what I mean? Sometimes some people get too big too big headed too fast and they burn out you know some guys uh get so frustrated they can't ever make that that transition that click whatever it is you know it's it's not an easy place to be now i would much rather be a talent when i came through than a talent now and why is that just just because of the environment just the environment was different i mean i think for me it was better because a lot of the people that i was working with are people that i respected and kind of grew up with and there was leadership all the way around I think that's one thing that maybe hurts a little bit is there's not enough real veteran leadership on the road and in the rings. Guys that have, you know, there's a few guys, but when I started, everybody was a veteran. You also had the luxury of having your first match against Hulk Hogan. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. So, I mean, I can't, I can't compare that to anything else. But what I'm trying to say is I think there's you only get better from the top down. And when the top down sets a very high bar, everyone else achieves to set that bar. The top guy has to be pushed from underneath, too. You know, like it's a real hydraulic fluid situation where people uh, underneath on the lower card uh, have to be pushing that division to get it going. And that's why you've seen such an amazing uh, transformation of our women's division is because you look at the top talent we had in our women's division. You had Charlotte Flair and Becky Lynch and Bailey and Sasha and these girls that just went out and changed the dynamic of women's wrestling. And then what do you get? You get all these girls that come in uh, behind them that see, okay, this is the opportunity. I want this opportunity. And the girls are more aggressive in the backstage and in the locker room for time, for having good matches, having quality matches. I see that hunger that I don't see in the guys sometimes. I think that's, that's where the dynamic has shifted. Maybe that'll explain a little bit about the difference between hungry and, and pushing and being driven because your top girls, your Charlotte, your Becky, all your girls up top, they're not giving up their spot. Right. They're not, right. Do a spot. They're not giving it up. If you want, you're going to have to come take it. And this, it's going to take more than one or two good matches to get their spot. You're going to have to prove yourself. And I think that changes the whole division because that dynamic becomes of we all have to grow together and everybody's going to grow. And you almost end up with a bottleneck of talent because, I mean, you look at NXT and their their women's division is so stacked and it's keeping all the girls on Raw and SmackDown on their toes on any given oh, yeah. night. Competition is not a bad thing, man. Competition is a good thing for for making talent focused because i think sometimes when uh it's not we we don't really have where we're going we're cruising we're chilling it's fun you know Um, that's never a good environment a good environment for for working is is 
almost, uh, I would say almost a little bit of chaos, almost out of control, but not quite. If you're out of control enough where, where you're, you're pushing that hard, um, then you're doing it right. You know, if you're not challenged, if you're not challenging yourself, then that's, that's a fetid place where you can't grow. So let's play a little game of what if now you've obviously <laughs> what if i had wings i wouldn't bump my ass when i hop <laughs> so let's let's say hypothetically big show in 2020 having all the knowledge that you've acquired over over your right. illustrious career if you are in say the position of someone just arriving in nxt or just coming from nxt to raw or smackdown what would you say is the most important bit of advice you could give yourself keep your mouth shut and observe don't run up and kiss everybody's <laughs> shake their hand, introduce yourself. You know, don't bother anyone. Learn. And when the opportunity presents itself for you to showcase, go balls out. You know, because there's a thousand and one people that will come up and shake you. Oh, I'm so-and-so, and I'm really happy to be here, and I'm really happy to be here. I've been a fan my whole life, and yada, yada, yada. Okay? Show me what you can do. Show me you can put and seats show me you can have a match show me you can tell a story not you do your stuff i do my stuff you do your stuff i do my stuff finish you know that's 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 a bumper car race i don't want to see that make me get emotionally invested in what you're doing as a talent sure you look at some of the great talents we've had you know it wasn't a high spot fest it wasn't who could do the biggest moves or the best moves it made you emotionally invested and that can also be done with a lot of very exciting spots, a la Rey Mysterio. Rey Mysterio, Eddie Guerrero, those guys were, you know, Rey is amazing, Eddie was, but they got you emotionally invested in what they did. You know, they walked out there with confidence and and gave you the Rey Mysterio character. They gave you the Eddie Guerrero character, you know, and, and that's the thing. All the politicking and handshaking and, and uh, BS in the back, big deal. You're a nice guy. Good for you. Go out in the ring and show that aggression. You know, one of the things that, and I always talk about Becky Lynch, but Becky Lynch is one has inspired me a lot in the past 10 years than any other athlete that I've worked with. And uh, Becky, I saw her when she first came up here and we were doing tours in Europe on the road. And I saw Becky women's division, what it was. I think they were still calling it divas division back then, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, but the one thing about every match that Becky had, I thought, whoa, she's just hustling as hard because we're in Ireland or, you know what I mean? She was trying to beat her opponent and every cover was translated desperation of trying to, I'm trying to beat this person. This is a contest. This is a story. I'm giving everything I have. It wasn't a spot fest. It was a story that you get emotionally involved in. You pay attention to it. And I remember thinking right then, if the guys don't change how they work, these girls are going to run over them. And it's evident now. It's evident in how the women's division is completely changed and respected. If you want to see quality wrestling stories and wrestling psychology, you kind of go to the women's division if you're a wrestling purist because you're going to get better stories. You know, and no, no, no offense to the other guys. You know, I have a lot of respect for the guys that I work with. A lot of the guys are there now, but I think the guys need to, I don't know, shake it off, uh, wipe off some of the slag, do something to, to, to remember why they're there and what they're doing. So, so in your opinion, what do you think, what do you think changes that? What I think changes that is, is work ethic. 
is work ethic and, and working smart and getting invested in your character and getting invested in the storylines and, and, and creating something. Uh, if nothing's being created for you, you can still create a good story with an opponent. You are healthy and I go out there. I could tell a compelling story and get you over in a match and tell right. a story. I did it with Jinder Mahal to get Jinder his, you know, whether people like Jinder Mahal as a champion or not. Jinder Mahal completely 180 degree turned his work from three-man band to when he became a champion. His aggressiveness, I mean, you know, the way he got heat, you know, I had a match with Jinder Mahal a couple of months before that. And I remember, you know, saying, I said, wow, Jinder's really changed how he works. He's really stepped up. And it was, and you could feel it in his work and his aggression and his attitude. And I think that light bulb was really on for them there. And, and then he man, was able to manifest that into a pretty good run. You know what I mean? From out of nowhere where no one expected it. You know, we're used to seeing the same players in the same positions. You know, they flip flop here and there. When you get somebody like Jinder Mahal who comes in out of the blue, that's a good thing because that shows that it is possible the rest of the roster. And that should have been a, a a glaring light bulb for the rest of the guys in the locker room. Same thing with Kofi Kingston. Right. You know, Kofi Kingston for years was, you know, did consistent. the right thing. Did Just right consistent. Thing. consistent. <laughs> Kofi Kingston couldn't have a bad match with anyone. Kofi Kingston could have a good match with me. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, and Kofi showed the entire roster if you work hard, if you stay committed, if you get people emotionally invested in you, opportunities will come. You know, believe me, WWE isn't just sitting there like, oh, only these guys are going to be main eventers. That's complete BS. The entire roster that's getting a paycheck has a chance to be a main event. You know, it's what they can find their way to make themselves different and make them and, and tell a story. That's what fans are pissed off about. They talk about how great the Attitude Era was. And we were a bunch of maniacs in the Attitude Era. <laughs> we were maniacs. But what we had is, is we had our character beliefs, and we were in situations, and we went whole hog into that situation. Hey, don't go anywhere. I got bills to pay. I'll be right back with more ATB. As you look back on your career, what are some of your personal favorite opponents or matches or maybe some things that don't get as much love as you'd like? Oh, well, I think, you know, obviously when I worked with some of the great ones like Hogan and Sting and Flair and, and Arn and a lot of those guys were just, you know, I was a kid in a candy store working where those are heroes growing up, you know. Um, throughout my career, I had some great runs with, um, I loved tagging when I was tagging with Billy Gunn when we were show guns. Uh, I had a great time with that. Uh, never got a lot of love, but you know it was a it was a fun time as a tag team. Stuff I did with Kane, you know, Kane and I just I had so much fun working with Kane every night. Like we we're just two grumpy big guys. That just, <laughs> we're just grumpy. Like I mean, you know, I, I could tell everybody that had to work with Kane. I was just like, oh, we got those two grumpy bastards. You know what I mean? Uh, in a good way, in a fun way. Um, the run I had with Seamus, one of my feuds with Seamus, I always talk about, you know, Seamus is one of the toughest opponents I ever have. I had a lot of fun with Seamus. Um, I mean, I got bruised and got the crap kicked out of me every night, but I had a lot of fun with Seamus. <laughs> and Mark Henry, too. You know, Mark and I had a lot of fun. We had a pretty good little feud there for a while. 
uh, when he was a heavyweight champion, and uh, it worked really good. It worked right into uh, me having, what, like a five-second title reign before Daniel Bryan took it <laughs> off of me? Just about, just about. Yeah, the, the I think I lost it the quickest in history or something like that, so I got my uh, uh, Daniel Bryan uh, picked the carcass after Mark and I destroyed each other. So conversely, despite all the incredible moments and memories you've been a part of, right. You've had uh, quite a few things that have lived on, maybe not for the reasons you've chosen. Oh, uh, <laughs> as does anybody. About that baby New Year diaper thing. Yeah, that's a great I wasn't going to go there, but <laughs> no, that's a great. One. I love that one because every New Year's I get like I know 150 emojis of me doing that New Year dance. I love that one. That's awesome. <laughs> but a lot of a lot of you know these days with the internet, things get dug up and, and dragged around oftentimes, and uh, you talk about. Falling off the top of, was it Kobo Hall in a monster truck? Kobo Hall, yeah, yeah. Um, any of these sort of sort of ridiculous, over-the-top, by today's standards stories, any of them, do you look back on and go, that was hilarious now in hindsight, or is there anything maybe you want to defend, you think, that gets maybe a bad rap that doesn't deserve? No, uh, the only one that, that I'll defend is uh, Jericho used to break my balls all the time about me getting knocked out by the mechanical bull. You know, he says... Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm your killer, your destroyer, you're a monster. And then next week, we split up, you get knocked out by a mechanical bull. It's like, well, it's the way it goes. You know, some days it's your day, some days it's not. No, I mean, any of that stuff that I've done. I mean, there's a lot of things you can poke fun at, you know, like, you know, me at WrestleMania fighting Aki Bono when I have 40 yards of silk wrapped up my ass, you know, (laughs) my big ass is hanging out and they brought in Aki Bono, who's supposed to be this 500 and something pound guy, and I outweighed him by 40 pounds. So it kind of it shifted the whole dynamic. Vince got mad at me because I outweighed Aki Bono by 40 pounds. Sorry, <laughs> I'm a giant. What do you want? I remember Vince was so pissed at me. God, you need to lose some weight. God damn it. Like, he was just so mad at me because I weighed, like, I think I weighed 509, and Aki Bono weighed, like, 472 or something like that. So they're, they're trying to figure out how to make Aki Bono way more. But uh, no, all that stuff, uh, here's the thing. If you look back in your career at all the things that went bad or went wrong or didn't turn out like you wanted to, that's that's what I call selective booking. You know what I mean? Hindsight's always twenty twenty on a match. You can always talk about how great a match would have been if you'd have done this and that and the other after a match. Sure. I think as an, as an athlete, you have to really, especially as a superstar, you have to be committed in your match, be in it mentally, physically, one for safety and two for growth. And when it's over, contemplate it. If there's some things you didn't like about it, change it. Don't do it again and move forward. Because whether you have good matches or accolades or any of that crap, doesn't matter. You're there doing your job and you get the privilege and the honor to go down that ramp and work in front of those fans every night. Because when it gets taken away from you, I don't care who you are, one day it will stop. Whether Father Time kicks your ass because he's undefeated or, God forbid, injuries, it will be taken away from you. And you don't want to look back on your career reflecting that you bitched the entire time you were doing the greatest job in the world because of whatever. Everything that you do in that ring, you have control over it's up to you to find out how to make the most out of it for yourself. There's a period of your career that I feel like doesn't get much love or attention um, just because it was so seemingly so fleeting was when they rebooted ECW. 
and you were a big part of that. <laughs> ECW hated me. What are you talking? They booed Batista and I out of the building. <laughs> right. Well, I, w- I want to get your perspective on things because obviously when, when ECW was relaunched as a brand of WWE, it wasn't yeah. the ECW that the fans had known and loved. It was something very, very different. But you were there on the right. front lines. You were one of the faces of this, this new project. What are some of your memories of that? I think there was a big disconnect the WWE had with the ECW fans. Um, I remember going to the, to the live event shows and the merchandise that they were selling at the ECW shows was, you know, Undertaker, Triple H, you know, like these sure. people didn't buy a ticket to see these guys. You know, they came to see Tommy Dreamer. You know what I mean? I had to earn a lot of respect from the ECW fans. And it took a lot for me. Because when I first, when I had that match with David at the Hammerstein Ballroom, mm-hmm. and David and Batista and I gave them a hell of a match, but we weren't what they want to see. Right. They didn't, they didn't give a crap. They may like Dave Batista. They may have liked the big show uh, independently, but not for their ECW. They wanted the guys that, that they identified with that they were emotionally invested in. And that was the difference. And it took a while to get emotionally invested with the ECW audience till they realized, like, ah, that big show's not such a bad guy. We'll cut him a break, you know? But it took me a while of uh, not letting that get to me and and just going out every night and trying to do the best that I could every night, working with guys like Sabu, who was, you know, such an amazing uh, lunatic, he was fun because I never, I never knew what Sabu was going to do. He was so talented, like you, you never knew. Right. You know I mean? Right. Or you're working with RVD, who, would in the middle of selling, would jump up and give you a high spinning back kick and knock your molars down the back of your throat. <laughs> and you're like, do you need a comeback now? You just have to ask for one. You don't have to really start making one. <laughs> well, what was it like for you personally, having gone from you know the pinnacle of? of- WCW to uh, top of the card in WWE. Now you find yourself on ECW as sort of a, a fledgling newer brand. And to your point, you're not getting the love or the admiration of the fans anymore. What did that feel like to you personally and professionally? Didn't bug me. I'd already been through worse. I'd already gone from uh, WrestleMania 2000 main event to a few months later being in OVW. So I, I went out there one night in OVW and there were seven people there. And some guy asked me if I wanted to, because he was grilling hot dogs outside. As I'm in the ring, so show you want me to save you a hot dog? I'm like, yeah, thanks, appreciate it. <laughs> it's one of those environments where you can actually hear what the fans are saying, and you know, uh, hear, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know that somebody need to pick up bread on the way home because they won't have you know bread for sandwiches the next day. It's like, but you know, in all sincerity, you know, I could have taken that experience and made it a negative thing and bitched and moaned and blah 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 blah. But you know what? <laughs> In that OVW experience, I got a chance to get away, to reboot, to rethink, and establish some friendships and relationships that I could make in WWE when I first got. When I first got to WWE, dude, I was like, you know, a nuclear power plant. I was so radiated. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, there, there, there were guys that wouldn't come within 20 feet of me. You know, like, like you know what I mean? Like, it was like I had way too much heat. You know what I'm saying? Sure. So, you know, big contract from another territory, giant blah, 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 blah. I was a heat magnet. When I got to OVW, I got to be friends with, you know, Batista and Brock and Cena and Randy Orton, the next generation of main eventers. And it was good for me because I got to interact with those guys and and build relationships with them that made it easier for me uh, once it started picking up again. I mean, I, I owe my entire resurgence of my career to Brock Lesnar anyway. You know, for the longest time, I was still napalm when I came back from OVW. And uh, 
Brock's main event somehow got stuck in a plane or something like that. And Jack Lanza in a house show threw me in the main event against Brock and Brock and I tore the house down. And because before that I was working mid card, I was like in body slam matches or stuff like that. You know what I mean? And, uh, I filled in for that main event and Brock and I literally tore the frigging house down because Brock can flat out go. I mean, you know, he's his character now he's the beast and all that stuff. But Rock gets it just like Kurt Angle got it. The amateur wrestling background made him a better performer. So I remember uh, hearing the story that they were asking Brock there, who your next opponent says, I want to work with show. He's a giant. He can work. It's your guy. You know, you guys are idiots for sleeping on him. Basically, you know how Brock is. Sure. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Brock and I started working and tearing the house down and it changed a lot of people's perceptions of who I was as a talent and who I was as a, as an individual. And, you know, I really owe that break to have them relook at me just because of Brock. So that's something that I don't think I've ever told on any podcast. So there you go. Brock Lesnar responsible for the resurgence of the big show. Yeah. Very, so very if you hate the big show, blame Brock. <laughs> I'm passing, sure he'll, I'm sure he'll take your call. Passing the heat. <laughs> you know, it's veteran, bud. I'm learning. I'm learning from the best. <laughs> so uh, nowadays that you've, you've, said that you've opted for a, a lighter schedule within the walls of WWE. What else is there left for you to accomplish? Uh, anyone in particular you'd still like to, to lock up with? or? Oh, I'd like to work with the entire roster. You know what I mean? It's just finding the right creative that works, that makes sense, that allows me to take my brand and use it most effectively. I'd like to do uh, a couple more live events. I'm not so crazy about doing TVs. You know what I mean? Because it's just a long day that after a while you just want to bash your head in the side of the concrete wall. I'm good with that. I've done 20 plus years of TVs. I'm good. <laughs> uh, but I think I would be, you know, like getting out on some of the live events and working with some of the guys with the environment's a little bit more lax and not pressured for time cues in their matches and whatnot and, and help them along that way would be great. I mean, I've talked to the ops too about doing a couple of overseas tours because I still have a little bit of a name so I can help the card out a little bit, but then I can also be around these guys in a much more relaxed environment. Let me ask you this. It seems to be a recurring theme. A lot of talent come on here and explain why they prefer live events over television, or they, they mentioned that they do prefer live events over television, but explain why. Explain to the listeners what the difference in those two days is. TV, number one, you're there at 12 or 1, depending on the call time. And we don't go on the air until 7, 8, or 9, depending on where we are. I guess 8 now is the latest it'll go on. It's a long day of, of you're there. You're a catering. You can go work out. If there's a gym in the arena, you can go do some some exercises in the arena if you want to run the steps or hit the ropes or do some stuff in the ring, maybe. And then about 5.36, doors hit. And then it gets really busy, really fast, and things change. I've had opponents change 10 minutes before I was supposed to go out. I've had match times go from four-minute match to all we need two segments. The the pressure um, at that level during TV gets tiresome after a while. You're there for so long, and you're held up, and you're held up, and you're held up. Then it's a sprint, and then it's over, and then it's drive to the next town. You know, I think, you know, with, with the live events, the things that makes it a little bit easier is you get there later in the day. All your workout and stuff is done, is prepared, you're done. You know who you're going to work with. Time's not a factor. TVs, I think, are, are a little overwhelming because sometimes you'll have three times the amount of talent you have on a live event at a TV. So locker rooms are jammed. You're stepping over bags. And, you know, that was my thing as a veteran, too. I was like, look, if you're not on Raw or SmackDown tonight, 
get your bag and go put it in the car. You know, some guys would drag in three or four bags like they were moving into the place, you know, and I'm like, yeah. I remember in Seattle one time, Daniel Bryan was a champion. He was literally standing up in the corner dressing while four guys that weren't on TV who should remain nameless to protect their identity were sitting around with their feet up holding court. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, get your bags, get out, okay? The champion is standing here dressing, you know, because he's a nice guy because that's not how Daniel was. Daniel would never say, hey, move your I need a place to dress. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing at TVs, you know, would drive me insane back in the day. So, yeah, I think TVs are where you separate the men from the boys as far as pressure goes. But would you agree that the live events are where most of the learning really happens? The live events is where the learning happens. Because there's no, you know, TVs to me is like um, um, you, you sink or swim. So as you were saying, uh, the live events are where most of the, the boys and girls really learn the craft. I think I think a lot of the overseas tours is a good time to learn the craft, too, because you're not doing a show and going home. You're there for, you know, 10, 12 days in a row on a tour. And it's really a good chance and usually working the same person every night. So you can really dial in to get that match where it needs to be to get that psychology in the match where it needs to be. That's why I think the the longer overseas tours, like we do the Europe tours or some of the tours through Asia and stuff like that, um, was a great learning environment because you're totally immersed in the business, the guys in the locker room, you see them when you eat, you see them when you go to your room, you see them when you get on the bus. You know, that kind of saturation is, I think, is one of the, the best things for talent uh, that's lucky enough to get booked on one of those tours. Um, to grow because that's what it kind of takes is that total saturation of the people you're working with. Is there anybody that stands out in your mind off the top of your head that really improved before your very eyes or really kind of uh, impressed you over the course of a tour that you got to watch grow like that? Oh yeah. Uh, Not just throwing his name on the bus, but Seamus, you know, I've seen Seamus grow on a tour just from just being overexcited and eager to uh, changing and become a hell of a talent. Braun Strowman's another one. Braun, I've seen Braun worked a a tour with us. It was, I think, Bray and Braun against Kane and I. I watched Braun grow from being in the ring with Kane and I that whole tour. By the end of the tour, like, something clicked in his head and he got it. How important was it for you or, or what was going on inside your head when you had that program on television with Braun where officially or otherwise there was seemingly like a passing of the torch sort of moment? Right. How important was that for you and, and how did that feel? Well, considering I worked with a destroyed left hip that I couldn't walk <laughs> on, it was pretty important. You know, I had holes in my hip bone, my hip ball joint. It looked like a bowling ball. Like, you know, they didn't understand how I was walking, let alone working. Well, I was committed to the project and the project was Braun. And I was really happy that I was able to, because it made sense, uh, pull out a lot of his athleticism, a lot of his strength, a lot of his technical ability, which he does have. He's not just a guy that holds his hands up in the air and goes, Arr! Sure. You know, that's whatever he's doing now. But, you know, he can actually wrestle, you know. And those are things that I hope as his career goes on, he gets the opportunity he'll incorporate more of that. Not so much the kip-ups and the drop kicks. But some of the some of the the holds that he was demonstrating and chain holds and stuff um, made a lot of sense with the right opponent. It makes a lot of sense, you know. 
calls me dad, and I guess he is like a son to me, is him, Xavier Woods. Your road kids. Right. <laughs> those, those are my kids, yeah. But Ron did a real good job of, of understanding what Vince wanted and trying to give that 110% effort every night. The, the true test for Braun's going to be is how he finds his role and continues to grow going forward. You know, I mean, they built him up. He is a monster among men, you know, and all that. But now it's, it's how does he continue to grow from that and continue to stay over? Because, you know, a lot of times you're not going to, as a big guy, sometimes you're not going to get put in situations where you're, where you're going to get over, but you have to figure out a way to get over. And what would you personally credit that to? Because that's something you've dealt with throughout your career, where you come in with a, with a whole bunch of steam, usually get to a big you know main event or a, or a pay-per-view matchup, you get beat. Put somebody over and go away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you keep do, keep doing it? Stay positive. Stay in the angle. I mean, you know, you know that you're not going to – I'm not going to have a run like a John Cena. I'm not going to have a run like uh, another like, – like a Roman Reigns. I'm not going to be the guy. You know what I mean? I am a tool. I am an asset. You know, I told I told that to another friend of mine that was on the show that was an attraction kind of like me. I said, look, dude, we're gimmicks. They can do this show with us or they can do this show without us. It's up to us to make sure that they need us, you know, in whatever role that is, you know. And, you know, sometimes you know that, yes, this, you know, I may uh, – slaughter this many people or an entire locker room, but it's my job to go forth with that conviction and then put 110% effort into getting the guy over that they need me to get over, you know, because that's the new talent or that's the different talent or that's the next opponent for whoever that top guy is. And that's just the way the system works. You know what I mean? I mean, you look at, you know, John Cena's career, John Cena stayed on top for over 10 years. Right. That was unheard of. Unheard of accomplishment. Mm-hmm. You may talk about Hulk Hogan and Stone Cold and Rock and all those guys are amazing. But you look at the run that John Cena had for 10, 11 years. He was the man beginning to end. He got people over. He worked with you, got over, and was take, were taken more seriously as a talent by being in the ring with John, win or lose. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and John Cena made sure that there were a lot of butts in those seats, you know, well, I, you know, I, I, I remember a lot of houses being full a lot of the times working with John. So that kind of a, a, a talent is a rare entity. Now, uh, going forward for Braun, Braun should understand that he needs to stay true to uh, not coming down to work with someone, but finding a way to encourage someone to step up to work with him. And by him making them a better player, a more serious player, um, They'll go forward, the business will do better, and he'll do better, and he'll have a longer career. Because you're really only good as a talent if you can keep yourself over and get other people over. Absolutely true. I mean, that's you've literally made a career of it. You look yeah. back, and, and you've got John Cena, even up to Roman Reigns, but everyone who's walked through the doors, Brock Lesnar, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Jericho, I mean, you've had long, important runs with just about everybody. Well, I've been lucky and fortunate that way, but I never went into it um, confusing the narrative. I knew my job was to be a giant and their job was to slay the giant. And it was my job to either go away or to find another angle and do something and build myself back up as a giant and come back, whether it's a face or a heel. You know, that's it's it's really a great position to be in. You know, what's the old story? I'm a jack of all trades, master, master of none. Of none. <laughs> <laughs> well, you knew your role and you played it to perfection, but nowadays uh, you find yourself in another role. Not unfamiliar in front of the silver screen, but uh, oh my t- goodness. tell me a little bit about your new Netflix project. 
Oh, dude, I am so excited about this, Corey. This is a, a partnership with Netflix and WWE. Uh, it's called The Big Show Show. It's a multi-cam live comedy um, family sitcom, and it's shot in the same stage that Cheers, uh, Mork and Mindy, um, Stage 25 at Paramount. So there's a lot of really famous shows that were shot on this stage. And um, it's myself, uh, Allison Munn, who's a great actress. Uh, she plays my wife. Lily Brooks uh, O'Brien plays my middle daughter, who is very... Uh, politically correct, uh, vegan, save the earth. Like she's, she's on all points. Like sure. you can tell someday. She's, she's basically Sami Zayn. Yeah. Oh God, don't say that. <laughs> I like that. So, uh, Julia Donafield is, uh, she plays my youngest daughter. Um, she is uh, the genius in the family, but she's the youngest. But we don't know if she's going to be like a Steve Jobs for Apple or like a guru. As far as genius goes, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, like Despicable Me grew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's got like uh, candy scams for cash going and beta fish fight clubs. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with her. And I kind of let her get away with everything because she's kind of like, you know, my my heart, so to speak, you know. And sure. she knows yeah. it and she manipulates me like no tomorrow. And then Raylan Caster um, plays my oldest daughter, Lola, from a different relationship. Her mom gets a job in Europe, and Lola ends up coming to move with us in Tampa. So it's me, the big show, retired, uh, being a husband and a dad with his family and interacting with these four women who bounce me around like a pinball. And uh, it's, it's been a real small world how it all came together. And uh, uh, from the very first reading with this entire cast, uh, we all clicked so well. Because you never know what you're going to get when you do casting like that. You know, right. You're professional. You want to... You, you want to work well. And I knew that on my set, because I'd been on other sets before, I knew on my set I wanted a set of, uh, of safety, of, of, of acceptance, of, of, of uh, you know, not taking them specialness, but of inclusion. I wanted to be a, uh, a set of love. You know what I mean? I want everybody respected from people building our sets all the way up to our producers, our writers, our actresses, you know, anybody that came on the guest spot. And I thought we really, really did a great job of that because these girls, you know, I have three new daughters now, you know, (laughs) I mean, this past December, I took all three of them for a Christmas present to an Ariana Grande concert in Anaheim. I went to an Ariana Grande concert. Me. You strike me as a a big time Ariana Grande fan. I was like, you know what? If anyone likes Ariana Grande, it's probably. You know what? It's funny. I don't listen to her music, but I tell you what, she's got one hell of a voice. I I have to like. I had to. I was surprised a little bit. She was belting out that tunes, and she's like this big, but she's got this gigantic voice. And I was like, "Oh, well, this isn't so bad. I might hit iTunes and buy some." So it might, it may or may not be in my playlist now. But anyway, no judgment. But yeah, I love the girls. I think that's one thing when you see the show, the writing, um, the guys that really put this together, Jason Berger and Josh Bissell. These guys put together a very witty. Uh, you don't have to dumb it down. Like a lot of family shows, it's dumbed down to be right. Funny. Right. Uh, this one's not really dumbed down. It, it's very funny. There's a lot of uh, family issues to deal with. And you're also dealing with a seven foot, you know, uh, 400 pound man child who uh, maybe doesn't quite always make the great decisions, but he makes them all out of love. So it's going to be really good. I think people are going to love it. comes out April 6th. So start streaming April 6th on Netflix. April 6th on Netflix. That was going to be one of my next questions. But it, how, how did it feel to do television in front of a live audience? Was it more familiar than, or what's the difference? 
I loved it. Oh yeah. my God, I loved it. Everything you could hope and dream of and all wrapped into one. Like when we did Saturday Night Live with The Rock, when we got to do that little guest spot with The yeah. Rock, yeah. I got a little taste of that live audience and it was like, man, it was it never got out of my system. I knew that's what I wanted to do and I knew who I am and how I'm funny and I'm not afraid to make fun of myself and I knew that I could come up with a hit uh, if I get the right vehicle to do it. And I drove Vince absolutely insane about uh, doing something like this. And it's almost like, I think Vince was probably more relieved when this partnership happened and this idea came about. He's like, Oh, thank God I can get big show off my ass. (laughs) Just a sigh of relief. (laughs) Just a sigh of relief that finally, you know, he could put this in my hands and if it sinks or, or, or swims, it's on me. And, uh, you know, I tell the girls all the time, I have no doubt 110% that our fans uh, are going to love the show. There's something in it for everyone. You can sit down with the whole family and watch this demographic. It's a good family show. I mean, it, it's something that I think that is uh, uh, a little bit rare for nowadays. You know what I mean? Because the family actually loves each other. There's not uh, a bunch of dysfunctional crap going on. Sure, it's sort of a wholesome sort of show. Yeah, it's a family you want to be a part of. I mean, that's the vibe I've got back from some of the people we pulled and sense that have come to the shows. Uh, uh, you know, ours is a family you want to be a part of. Uh, I'm the kind of dad you want to have because I guess I'm just goofy enough and protective enough that it works out. Do you have any wild behind-the-scenes stories or off-camera stories from uh, the new uh, Netflix show? I do. I do. You know, this is funny, and I might get in trouble for this, but, you know, it's okay. If it happens on my show, I get in trouble for it, so you got free All right. reign. No. All right, well... <laughs> The golden rule at Paramount is the only guy that's allowed to park next to the stage at Paramount is Dr. Phil. So I could rent stage 25 and 26, which we did for the big show show, but I had to park in a parking lot 150 yards away and hoof it to work where Dr. Phil parked 10 feet away. How did you we try to, you had to remedy this somehow? No, it never got remedied because I just, let's face it. I didn't have the stroke. Paramount basically said, you know, it's sorry. It's grandfathered in. Dr. Phil is the only one that's allowed to park there. You might be the world's largest athlete, but still no match but for Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil with my ass when it comes to getting a closer parking spot. Never mind that I'm arthritic. I've got blowed out knees, a metal hip, herniated discs in my back. But you know what? Dr. Phil. <laughs> it's a, it really puts you in perspective in the world. Yeah, sometimes. and my co-star, Allison Munn, used to tease me all the time. She said, so where'd you park today? You know, kind of like, same place I did yesterday. Salt in the wound, my friend. Salt in the wound. Salt in the wound. <laughs> but God bless her, I love her. So, uh, um, yeah, it's fun. It's a fun little joke. In all sincerity, you know, if you want to call it is what it is, you know, Dr. Phil has done an amazing show, helped so many people, and, you know, he's been on that lot for a long time. So if I had to look at it in wrestling terms to understand it, he's a veteran. I'm a rookie. He gets to park clubs. Everything in the world can be wrestling if you want it to be. <laughs> Everything, every lesson in life can be taught through wrestling psychology or wrestling interaction. Yes, I agree. Could not agree anymore. April 6th, the big show show on Netflix. Definitely do not miss that Uh, show. What else are you up to? Anything else going on at the moment? All right. Just uh, training cardio like a madman. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm down now when I was shooting the TV show, I got a little chubby to be a TV dad. I got about 4.15, I think, and I'm down just way this morning at 3.80. So 
Hopefully by Manny, I'll be around 371 and all six backed out. That way I can look pretty straight in the face and go, what you got? Rumor or otherwise, are you working on some sort of uh, burger project? Yeah, that's Real Top Cafe. Who told you that? Okay, nobody. You got I, some inside sources. I, hey, listen, I'm, I'm flexing my journalistic muscles. Your journalistic muscles, now that you busted me wide open. I can't, yeah, I'm working on the Big Show Burger. So details come soon. I'm doing, it's, it's still in the infant stages. I'm making sure that a lot of things are, are, uh, straight and accurate you know i have a real big thing i want hormone free grass-fed i want healthy meat i want good meat if i'm gonna put it on my table i want to make sure you can put it on yours beautiful that might be my next thing i might get like a food truck and i'll sell big show burgers at wrestlemania you know what i mean i think i could do that right yeah the burgers you can do whatever the hell you want as long as i make sure i eat before i go to work because if i eat all my profits it's a bad business exactly Exactly. Don't get full on your own supply. <laughs> well, when you get uh, when you get closer to launch or whatever, I'm happy to have you back here. Oh, or that'd be awesome, man. Definitely, I'll send you a box. When we get rolling up, I'll send you a box. So, Excellent. Uh, uh, I've I've uh, test done a couple of the burgers that we've talked about now, and it's uh, it's a really cool concept of what we're doing, and the burgers absolutely do taste amazing. So. And that was the main thing for me. I didn't want some frozen kind of crappy burger. I wanted good real meat. So that's what we got. Tremendous. I cannot wait to try it. All right, show. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. By your journalistic uh, endeavors there. You're a little scary. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm impressed with that young man. I'm really impressed. <laughs> Keep my eye on you. <laughs> Appreciate it. I, I got to keep you on your toes. All right, Joe. Well, you are always welcome here on After the Bell, and uh, I can't wait to see you around Mania time. Hey, man, thank you for letting me uh, uh, be on your show. I appreciate it. And, you know, uh, I keep up with you on social media. A lot of people respect what you're doing with the show. Don't change you. You're doing a great job, by the way. Real proud of you. Thank you, Joe. I will see you soon, man. man. See you, bud. Bye. <laughs> Our time to part ways with one another has rapidly approached and finally arrived but I would not leave you without a little zen for your day. The man who said it was Jack Handy, an infamous comedy writer, who said it takes a big man to cry, but it takes a bigger man to laugh at that man. It felt apropos. Thank you once again to the big show for hanging out today. Make sure you follow at After the Bell on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Send us any thoughts you may have using the hashtag After the Bell. I know I've said this a bunch like every single week. But if you're an Apple podcast user and you haven't left me a review yet, please shoot me five stars or four. Just don't do one. It really helps get the word out. I swear. If you're using an Android, follow ATB on Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or Google Podcasts so that you never miss an episode because it's fun to be enlightened, isn't it? And you can follow me at WWE Graves on Twitter, on Instagram, and I swear I'll be back next week with more wisdom, more vitriol, and more WWE after the bell.